Good morning again. At the end of uh, first hour, thinking of uh, Janet, that she is not able to be here with us, and we do pray for her, uh, pray for her, her health, her encouragement. Uh, the Bob uh, stopped me and said, you know, I always tell Janet when she's gone, there's something wrong with that piano. It never makes a sound when she's, when she's not here. Well, this morning it made a sound, so we are very thankful uh, for that. Thank you again, Brenda, for uh, contributing to our worship this morning. I want to turn this morning to Colossians chapter 1. In the times that I have the pulpit, I will be uh, endeavoring to uh, go through the book of Colossians. It's been a while since I have personally studied this book, and um, I don't know that I personally have heard a series on Colossians, but uh, uh, so I thought it gives me an opportunity to, to learn, and hopefully I'll be a blessing to you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll be reading the first 14 verses this morning. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ and Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul, his love for the churches, and for this letter here to this church in Colossae. I would just ask that you would help us to glean from uh, your word, what you would have us this morning, and I would pray that if there's anything that I might say in error, that the Holy Spirit would uh, supernaturally intercede in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it to correct any error that I might have. Above all, we pray that the Lord would receive the honor and the glory this morning. We ask it in his own name. Amen. Paul's letter to the church in Colossae is uh, one of four letters that's often referred to as the prison epistles. These include uh, his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And there are several similarities between uh, especially Ephesians and Colossians, which I think probably indicates some of the same issues that were prevalent in both churches. 
And many of the, while many of the uh, letters that Paul writes uh, that we have in the New Testament are addressed to uh, or related to churches that he planted, uh, the church in Colossae was not planted by Paul. We get that uh, uh, from verse 7 in our passage that uh, indicates that they heard or they learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And so Epaphras visited Paul while he was in prison and reported news of the faith of the Colossians to him and likely included some concerns for the church. And it was the faith of the believers at Colossae along with uh, concerns which apparently prompted Paul to write this letter. And among the issues in this church were the influence of false teachers, uh, included uh, Gnosticism, uh, Jewish legalism, and others that will be addressed in chapter 2, and uh, uh, also in how they walked. He has uh, some prayer for uh, their walk, that they would walk uh, worthy of the calling, uh, that they would walk according to the gospel. And so here in in our passage this morning, Paul opens with a mixture of praise and prayer for this church and from this, I want to try to draw out three lessons for us this morning. Uh, the first one being the reasons for Paul's praise, the reasons for Paul's prayer, and the reasons for Paul's hope. And before we get to uh, these lessons, I just also want to address something uh, early on in, the, in his uh, uh, greeting to this church, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it's something that that is important as we uh, consider this letter and also the other letters. And that is the way that he opens his letter. Note that he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ and Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. First, he addresses himself as an apostle. I don't want, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this other than to say that this is a, a claim to authority that Paul is making here. The term apostle, as uh, many of you likely know, is, is a term that means to be sent by another, and it, it denotes one who is legally charged to represent the person and cause of another. It therefore signifies that the person sent has been sent with the full authority of the sender, the one who sent him. And I had to think of uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus in this. In uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in 3 and 1, he exhorts his listeners to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We say, well, wait a minute. How is Jesus an apostle? Well, he is one who was sent. He said in, his, in the Gospel of John, in a couple places, in John 6 and 38, He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, in John 8 and verse 28, uh, speaking to the Jewish leaders, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing from my smell, (laughs) smell, I do nothing from myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In other words, even though Jesus is God, he is ultimately stating that he derives his authority from the Father who sent him. He says, I do nothing of my own will. 
but only the will of the Father who sent him. And so as Paul is noting himself as, as, as an apostle, he's stating, this teaching is not mine. What I am saying to you does not come from me, but this comes from the Lord. That's the first point I want to make this morning. The second point is to whom the letter is addressed, to the saints and faithful brothers, the saints. And it's no secret to us. We know this, uh, but again, I think it's something that still bears repeating. The word saint is, is a word that means to be holy or sacred or, or to be dedicated or set apart to God. And throughout the New Testament, it's a word that is applied to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. It is never, never, never used of the super-Christian. That's the way we think of it in our world, generally speaking, when we, and we think of the saints. Oh, they're the ones that... that well, they, they're the ones that had this super spiritual life and they did all these wonderful works. And, and outside of the Catholic Church, we would think, well, Billy Graham, well, if there's a saint there ever was, that's Billy Graham. I'm looking at a room full of saints right now, set apart, dedicated to Jesus Christ. And now they have that out of the way, let's continue on with uh, the lessons that I want to try to draw out. And the first one being the reasons for Paul's praise in the first eight verses. Actually, really, I guess now from the verses three through eight, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And there's, I see three key reasons uh, in here. I, I should continue reading here. Uh, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. And see, three key reasons here for Paul's praise. The first one is, he thanks God for their faith. Even though he will later exhort them regarding false teachers and holy living, he praises them. He starts by praising them. And this is Paul's pattern. If we see it throughout the, throughout the letters that he, that he wrote, he would always start out with a praise. I can't think of one, and, and if, if I'm missing one, please correct me, but I can't think of one where he doesn't start out with praise. This includes the church in Corinth, which if ever there was a problem child among the churches, it was the church in Corinth. And he even wrote them. He said, I praise you. I thank God for the faith that you have. That is an important lesson here for us by way of application. Most of us, most of us have heard the principle of offering criticism and should be constructive criticism. Start with the positive. Start with the positive. Then move on to the points of criticism. But criticism must always carry with it the goal of benefiting the individual to whom it is being given. Otherwise, it's, it's just a beat down and hinders the relationship. I remember uh, several years ago, a brother in the Lord uh, took issue with something that I had said with, that he believed to be an error, and his words were rather harsh. And that was virtually the only interaction I had ever had with this brother. And I was scared 
to talk to him after that. I really didn't have a relationship with him. I heard years later, after he had gone to be with the Lord, what he truly felt about me and my family. And he said, the Shorleys, they're the real deal. If I had known that, how different would my relationship have been with this brother? I'm not putting it all on him because I have a responsibility in that as well. But how different would things have been? And it saddened me to think about that. So always begin with the positive. And Paul starts that way. He thanks them for their faith. And the second aspect or the second reason for Paul's praise for this church is for the love that you have for all the saints. And we see this elsewhere in, in Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, he wrote to them, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And the church in Thessalonica and, and 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3 Paul wrote to that church, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And note that their faith goes hand in hand, and therefore our faith also goes hand in hand with our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going somewhat off script here, but I... I was thinking about, uh, uh, there's a science fiction series that Heather and I uh, have enjoyed watching in the past. We've watched it several times. Uh, and uh, uh, won't get into all the details, but there's, this, uh, uh, one, there's a particular child that is key, and he's a very special child. Uh, he's key to the whole scheme of things and the salvation of humanity, literally. And, and uh, uh, one of the characters... This boy touches him, and in that instant, he has all these visions, including visions about his son. And he says, I can't explain it, paraphrasing here. But when he touched me, it allowed me to love you in a way that I never knew I could. I thought, there's a sermon in that, and here it is. Our faith goes hand in hand with our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he pulls this all together with a foundation for their faith. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's the title of my message this morning is Hope Laid Up for You. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also since the days you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That phrase itself could be a whole series of sermons. In fact, I'm actually listening to a series of sermons on hope now. I'm in fourth of, uh, the fourth uh, message out of eight uh, that are available Um, the hope laid up for you in heaven. And most of us know that whenever the scripture speaks of hope, it's not speaking of wishfulness, like, you know, boy, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I need to mow leaves, or 
I hope it rains tomorrow because I need to mow leaves. You know, it kind of depends on our perspective there. Victor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist and a survivor of Nazi concentration camps. And during his time in the, in the camp, he, is, he became fascinated by responses of different people to the situations that they were, the circumstances that they were in. And he noticed that a person's view of the future, their hope had much to do with not only their emotional well-being, but also their physical. In one instance, he told of a fellow prisoner who had a dream, and it was a very vivid dream, that the Allied forces would liberate the camp on a specific date. And the dream apparently was, as I said, was so vivid, he was, he was certain of this. As the date approached, and there seemed to be no apparent change in, in how the war was going on, he stopped eating. He eventually developed a fever. And on the day specified in his dream, he went unconscious. Next day, he was dead. He literally lost hope. He had his hope in a future that was not certain. In another instance, however, another prisoner, same camp, same circumstances, but he had this great positive outlook despite the fact of his circumstances. And when Frankel asked him about it, he said, well, my wife, who was in heaven, believed that she, that she was in heaven, might be looking down on me now, and I wouldn't want to disappoint her. There's a hope that was outside of himself. The point is, the Christian's hope is a foundation for the believer. Our hope is not a wishful thinking, but it is a certainty, a certainty in future events and outcomes. And note the location of our hope is laid up for you in heaven. certainty of a still future outcome and it's a very core of our being the writer of Hebrews in uh, Hebrews 6 puts it this way verses 6 19 through 20 if you are writing it down this hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both secure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil where a forerunner has entered for us Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. First, our hope is sure and confirmed. Second, it is sure and confirmed because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the forerunner who entered within the veil. And so the faith of the Colossian believers is rooted in this hope and not in earthly goods or treasures, but again, in the person of the work of Jesus Christ. And our faith is rooted in this hope. And because this hope is at the very center of our, of our being, our faith is not simply I believe, but I believe becomes I know. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, he wrote this to Timothy, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know 
whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In the face of whatever trials he was going through, Paul could say with confidence, I know whom I have believed. And this is what is keeping me. This is what is sustaining me. It's not me. I would even argue it's not even my faith. But it is the one in whom I have that faith. He is the one who is sustaining me. And finally, the third reason for Paul's praise is this is a faith and love that is rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ. And the third reason is that the gospel appropriated by, belie- by these believers is constantly bearing fruit. And we saw that in verse 6, where Paul points out the hope which they heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. It's that same gospel message, that same gospel hope that was constantly bearing fruit and multiplying. In the world, as everywhere, the message of the gospel had been received and is bearing fruit. And is bearing fruit in the, in the Colossians themselves since the day they heard and understood the grace of God. And because we know this is not our home, this, is, this informs how we view not only ourselves, but everything we own and everything that we do. In the first and second centuries, when the church was still young, and when plagues came into cities within the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick and dying, even though this meant many of them died themselves. Not only that, but it was the Christians who went into these areas to care for the sick and dying, even though this meant many of them died themselves. How could they do this? It was because of where, or better, in whom their hope was focused. And if you've ever faced a life-threatening or life-changing event in in your life, you end up finding out where this hope lies, don't you? I surprise even myself. It's almost eight and a half years ago now, June 25th, 2015, the day which will live in infamy, at least in my mind. As I lay on a slip and slide in Iowa Bible camp, unable to feel anything below my neck, my first thought was, my family will have to care for a quadriplegic the rest of my life. My second thought was, what are we going to do about our vacation that we had planned the next month? You know, it's funny the things that go through your mind. But in the midst of all this, not even knowing if I was ever going to walk again, if I could do anything ever again, I was able to joke with those around me. Even though they were freaking out, I was able to crack jokes. All I know is that wasn't me. That was not me. I can only attribute this to the working of the Holy Spirit in me. 
the working out of the hope I had in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And before we leave this section here, I also want to quickly draw attention to one last aspect of Paul's thankfulness. I said at the outset, Paul did not plant this church. This apparently was, was uh, a church that arose out of the uh, evangelistic work of uh, Epaphras, and we'll later learn in this letter that Epaphras came from Colossae. He was one of, he, he witnessed to his own townspeople. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul writes regarding this gospel that he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to John in Luke chapter 9. We just went through this recently in our Tuesday night Bible study. Luke 9, verses 49 and 50, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, Paul could have had an attitude of, Okay, I know you heard this from Epaphras. Now let me set you straight. That could have been his attitude. Let me make sure that you get it. Instead, Paul knows that Epaphras is a beloved fellow slave, a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. He holds the same attitude which he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3 and verses 10 and 11. Paul wrote, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This portion follows his teaching to the church in Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered, but the Lord provides the increase. I can't go in and lay another foundation. You already have the foundation. All I can do is build upon the foundation that Epaphras laid, and he is thankful for that. And finally, in the time that we have left, I want to turn our focus to Paul's prayer for this church, the reason for his prayer, along with the reason for his hope. Now, even though he had much to praise uh, in this church, he will always continue to pray for the church. And I see uh, at least four areas uh, that are included in this prayer. He prays for their knowledge, wisdom, and understanding in verse 9. Second, that they would walk pleasing to the Lord. That's in the first part of verse 10. That they would bear fruit for the Lord in the second part of verse 10. And that they would be strengthened, steadfast, and patient in verse 11. First, Paul says, first, Paul prays that they would be, in verse 9, filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And again, this parallels uh, in many ways. His prayers for the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 1, uh, 16 and 17, he writes that he does not cease giving thanks for them and praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His prayer 
for the Ephesian church as well as the church here in Colossae is for a complete, intimate knowledge. It's not just the facts about a person, but this is knowing the person. Part of the Gnostic teaching that was infecting this church was that salvation came through a a special secret knowledge that only a few could attain. By contrast, he says, I pray that you can have the full knowledge. This isn't a secret. And scripture clearly states that our knowledge is not about facts. It's about a person. And it's not secret or hidden at all, but it's open to all and for all. And note that the full knowledge of his will comes with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To illustrate this, uh, I thought about our own uh, experience in our, in our home and our family. Uh, our daughter, Sarah, used to tease Heather and me because uh, when, we would ask, when she would ask a question or we would be asked a question, Heather and I would frequently answer almost in union and in unison and almost the exact answer word for word and she'd say something like you know you guys are reading each other's minds I wish you would knock it out it's freaking me out this isn't mind reading of course but it's a natural outcome of a close intimate knowledge of another we know how we think we've had the same experiences and so we know what our, what our responses are going to be. And this also informs, informs our choices. Certain choices may be informed by the thought, what would Heather think of this? Second, Paul's prayer is for the full knowledge of his will is so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Again, Paul expresses the same thought to the church in Ephesus where in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, he says, uh, Paul writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Several years ago, uh, Oswald Chambers' book, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, gained popularity within the churches. In the book, a church asked the question of themselves, what if we lived out what Jesus taught? And the main question asked throughout the book was, what would Jesus do? We've all seen the bracelets and everything, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it's a good question. And we can only answer that question and walk in obedience to that question to the extent to which we know his will. We have to know him. If we don't know him, how are we going to walk in accordance with his word, with who he is? And the answer is we can't. So he prays that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Third, as the outcome of intimate knowledge leading to a walk consistent with the person and character of the Lord, Paul prays that as they walk, they would please him in all aspects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. And so the prayer is that as we walk to please him, that we would bear fruit. And he kind of comes full circle here. As we know him more fully and more intimately, we are enabled to walk in ways we know please him. And as we walk in ways that please him, we bear fruit, including an increase in the full knowledge of God. 
And notice that while Paul praised him for their fruit, he now prays that they would bear fruit. To the church in Thessalonica, a church which bore tremendous fruit for the gospel, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Finally, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You are bearing fruit, and I pray that you will continue to bear more fruit. And finally, Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. The purpose is for steadfastness and patience. Some translations render this phrase patience and long-suffering, the King James and New King James Version, or endurance and patience in the NIV and the English Standard Version. But looking at uh, my translation, uh, Legacy Standard Bible, which is uh, uh, New American Standard Bible, but it uh, uh, comes out of the New American Standard Bible. Regarding steadfastness and looking up uh, the, uh, uh, what the words mean in the original languages, and uh, one of my main sources for these Greek translations uh, made the following quote. The word uh, for steadfastness is uh, hypomone. If I'm saying that right, if you, unless you know Greek, you wouldn't know if I'm saying it right or not. Uh, but uh, this word, hypomone, and this is what it says, becomes a prominent virtue in the sense of courageous endurance. As distinct from patience, it has the active significance of energetic, if not necessarily successful, resistance. For example, the bearing of pain by the wounded, the calm acceptance of strokes of destiny, heroism in the face of bodily chastisement, or the firm refusal of bribes. True hypomone, true steadfastness, is not motivated by outwardly public opinion or hope of reward, but inwardly by love of honor. And the conclusion regarding its usage in the New Testament is this, that it is naturally a basic attitude of New Testament believers in view of the eschatological or related to the end times orientation of their faith over against a hostile world, they wait confidently for the fulfillment of the kingdom and their own salvation. The attitude of New Testament believers in view of the end times, our future glorious hope, that orientation of our faith, and this allows us to wait confidently for the fulfillment of the kingdom and their own salvation. In other words, it is the very nature that our hope is centered on our future glory in the presence of our Lord, which strengthens us with patient endurance. And the steadfastness is tied together very closely with patience. Again, in that same source regarding patience, it is not swayed by emotion, but has the end in view. It is a spiritual force that has its origin in the divine glory and works itself out in joyful endurance. 
And Paul's final prayer is that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that they would be joyously giving thanks to the Father. And this leads into our final thoughts for this morning as we consider the reason for Paul's hope in verses 12 through 14. where he writes regarding us uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I see two reasons for Paul's hope in view here. First is the work of the Father who has qualified us in verse 12 to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, what would happen to you if the President of the United States stopped in Atlantic and you just sort of nonchalantly tried to approach him? How far do you think you'd get? How close do you think you would get to him? Now, there's many here who would say, I wouldn't want to get close to him, but that's a, that's a, that's a different uh, topic altogether. Okay. Um, but suppose you tried to get uh, close to him. At the very least, you'd be taken away in handcuffs, if not tackled by Secret Service agents. Why? You don't have the proper qualifications to approach the president. But God, the Father, has qualified us to share in the, in the inheritance. Again, going somewhat off script here. Uh, I've shared this before in various uh, circumstances. I remember reading years ago when I was in college about a young man who uh, went to, happened to go to college with the son of President Gerald Ford, and he happened to be on the same flight as Gerald Ford, and he was, he was surrounded by all his Secret Service agents, and this young man decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to go talk to the president. And, of course, Secret Service steps in his way, and he said, Mr. President, I know your son. And he was allowed in. He was considered to be qualified to approach him. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance. This means that previously we were not qualified. But now we are qualified to stand in his presence. And he qualified us by rescuing us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. Previously we were unqualified because... We are under the authority of darkness. Isaiah 59 tells us, as well as the whole of Scripture, tells us that our sin creates a separation between us and God. And in our rebellion, we were slaves of sin. Paul writes all about that in, in Romans chapter 6. But now he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his Son in love. And the question becomes, how is this accomplished? And this is the second reason for Paul's hope. And that is the work of his son. Verse 14 concludes Paul's thought here. He transferred us to the kingdom of his, the son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in the verses that follow, which we're not getting into this morning, Paul erupts into some of the loftiest praise of Jesus, I think, in all of Scripture. And so to try to put this as succinctly as possible, we are qualified for the kingdom through 
the redemptive work of Jesus Christ through whom we have the forgiveness of sins. In John chapter 5, when the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he not only broke the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father and making himself out equal to, to be equal with God. In John 5 and verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the main of darkness into the kingdom of light and life in his son, the son of his love. And so we are qualified not by our own merits, but by the grace of God poured out for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and laid hold of through faith. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we do have a hope laid up for us in heaven. This is not a hope that the world considers hope to be. This is a certainty. This is the promise for all eternity. We look forward to that coming day when we will realize, recognize, be the full recipients of that salvation. The final outcome, the co final consummation, the full consummation of our faith. The consummation of our salvation. But until that day come, Father, we would pray, just as Paul prayed for the church in Colossae, that we would walk in a way that would please and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray. Strengthen us to do that which pleases you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.